everybody. Welcome back to the Noel Kassler podcast, episode 39. I'm back here with my main man, Jimmy Kennedy, LLJK. Ladies love <laughs> Jimmy Kennedy to uh, break down the week's events. We hope you all had a happy Thanksgiving. We're recording this on the holiday weekend. Jimmy, how, how was your Thanksgiving, man? Uh, it was great, man. Uh, small gathering. We, I hadn't seen my family uh, for that gathering in a year, obviously with the pandemic. But, uh, you know, I, I come from a big Irish family, so we, we've lost a lot of people over the years. So it's always sort of an emotional holiday with the people we've already lost, but with the, the tone of the world <laughs> on top of it, you know, we we were certainly thankful. And, you know, as much as I complain about this country and how it could be better for, for folks, in my personal situation, you know, it could be far worse. So I, I have to count my blessings. Yeah, man, there's always something to be grateful for, you know, yeah. and if, you, if you're living in gratitude, like for me, that's as close as I could be to any kind of spiritual sort of higher power, you know, because yeah. when you have gratitude, you realize you already have enough, you know, yeah. it's easy to think about what you don't have, but there's always somebody with less and uh, be grateful for what we have if we have it, because it's all fleeting. And, um, you know, I was down in Philly for a lot of the week. And then I drove back on Thanksgiving, but um, there's so many homeless people down there and in the cities of in New York City and all the major cities, you know, it's it's such a crisis. That's something that's dogged this country as long as I've been aware of it. You know, it sort of started in the early 80s with under Reagan, obviously, you know, he sort of cut all that social services and deregulated the mental health institutions. And they basically like threw a bunch of people on the streets. And now with income inequality and addiction and all these issues, you know, it's very jarring being in a metropolitan area. And I hadn't been in Philly in a long time. And Philly, of course, is a beautiful city. You know, it's a, just a gorgeous colonial city. I mean, colonial is a, a bad word, but you know, that federalist architecture, I'm not talking about the process of colonialism. I mean, just, you know, it's like Ben Franklin's house and stuff and this whole square, you know, and unfortunately their other big square is called Rittenhouse Square. <laughs> so it was hard to, you know, Rittenhouse was one of the, that was one of the founding sort of families of Philadelphia. So everywhere you go, you see like Rittenhouse Lounge at Penn. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, it was good to be down there. You're back to the homelessness. It's like human suffering weighs heavily on me as it does to most people that are semi-conscious, you know, and, and so does like any sentient being, animal suffering. So something like Thanksgiving is always a double-edged sword for me because there's so many people going without. And, uh, you know, there's so many people not doing anything to help that situation. They're just trying to score some points with their team and uh, we'll get into that in a minute, because obviously that stuff is still going down. But ultimately, it was a really nice holiday. It was nice to get out of town. I went to the Constitution Museum, you know, which is a new museum. You know, I think in the last 10 years or so, they've opened it. And there's a thing in that document that gets overlooked. I talked about this in the card rant. And one of the promises that the founding fathers had, at least for themselves, right, wealthy, wealthy white men, <laughs> was mm -hmm. domestic tranquility. This concept of like, if you're living at home, we're going to be at peace. You're not going to have warring tribes and like worried about the next village coming over to your village to attack you in the middle of the night and steal all your chickens and stuff, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as it as it had been for so long in so many places. And uh, I think that's overlooked. I think in the mess and the dumpster fire that Trump set off in this country, that's one of the things he robbed from us is, is the concept of domestic tranquility 
because we we don't have that anymore. And I know that's a theme on this podcast, how people are so rude to each other and traffic and revving up their engines and people have these Mustangs supercharged. So it sounds like a blitzkrieg when they're taken off at a traffic light. And that may sound cool to you as a 25 year old thinking you're going to pick up a chick in the bowling alley parking lot because you have a loud engine in your crappy American car. It might impress a certain demographic, but if you're an old lady sitting in that car, you know, and you hear that sound or it's coming up next to you on the highway, it's happened to us on the highway where we jump because somebody revs their car to go past you and they're clearly doing it in this aggressive manner. And what I'm talking about is this hostility that Americans now have for each other. You know, we've lost something. We've lost one of the constitutional promises. And it's ironic that it's happening at the hands of this party that claims the constitution as this holy document, right? It's the mantle they live under. The second amendment, you know? The second amendment, Patrick Henry was talking about well-armed, well-regulated militias to protect themselves against revolts from enslaved people. Don't kid yourself, right? It wasn't like, oh, we need to protect ourselves because we live in the country and we can't call 911, <laughs> you know? It was because <laughs> we want to be able to kill these dudes that we're mistreating in case they get the upper hand on us, right? You know, because they knew they were doing something wrong. And that has, you know, has metastasized into this gun culture, just disgusting, despicable display of Americanism, you know, and and we've lost a constitutional process. And we did that for a 75 year old drug addict in diapers, you know, who everything (laughs) about his life is Russian. He's been married three times, you know, one of them was an American woman. The rest of them were from Eastern Europe. He's in love with Russia. His buildings are full of Russians and Chinese nationals and stuff. There's nobody more un-American than Donald Trump, right? But, you know, he's, he's convinced all these people in middle America that he is the true patriot. And now there's all this infighting with these QAnon freaks. You know, they're all at each other's throats. And of course, we, you know, Lauren Boebert had the anti-Muslim slur against Ilian Omar that everybody saw, which was basically a stand-up routine, Jimmy. She was, she was doing stand-up. That's what you do. You tell a story and you got a big punchline and her punchline was insult comedy. That works fine at the comedy cellar or whatever, you know, or the stand or wherever, you know, there's a lot of bro comedians. I'm sure that would kill in Austin if you're opening up for Joe Rogan, right? Yeah. But for a sitting congressman to say that kind of dangerous rhetoric 20 years after 9-11 when American Muslims were persecuted here at home through xenophobia. Islam is a, is a religion of peace, you know, just to cast that aspersion is disgusting. Terrorism and, and Islam, the, the, you know, Muslim religions ha- were co-opted by terrorists that were looking out for their own interests, just like Christianity is being co-opted now by a bunch of fundamentalists in the South trying to convince people who have less that, you know, they're, they're fighting a holy war to attack the evil liberals and communists and stuff. You know what I mean? It's, she is a closer to a terrorist than Ilion Omar or anybody she's attacking, but it's red meat for the base, just like all this gun talk. And I'm getting to the point here, you know, that's domestic, domestic tranquility. You know, that's jarring. She took away any sense of peace that a Muslim American family would have on Thanksgiving when they had to see that. You know, people have to explain that to their kids that are going to see that people who have every right to live and prosper in health and feeling safe in their own country. We have elements in this country that are 
actively trying to take it away from fellow Americans. And that's in opposition of our constitution. And we have to stand up to it soon because we're becoming defenseless, right? We got an Omicron virus now because a bunch of morons wouldn't wear masks and get vaxxed. Now we're wide open for the next wave of this thing, you know, that could rip through here like wildfire. You could not leave your bedroom again for six months, Jimmy. You know, you're compromised, yeah. right? You're like you're more vulnerable than, than some. Are you good? Well, I'm healthier among my friends with disabilities. Like I'm not worried about it as someone who would be wheelchair bound. But, you know, this week, talk about disturbing domestic tranquility. You had the a former sitting president of the United States take a picture with Kyle Rittenhouse this week. You know, and what Lauren Boebert said is right on brand with what Trump said as president when he told four congresswomen who were who happened to be Arab to go back to the country where you came from. You know, it was xenophobia all over again, right on brand. And the thing that kills me, you know, I, I come from a Bible, a Bible Belt state in Indiana, or, you know, we have the doctrine and we, we are God-fearing Americans here. This group was the moral majority. And now they're in the pews chanting, let's go, Brandon. I think along, somewhere along the line, you missed the concept of like, you know, love and compassion in, in uh, Catholicism, you know, like the, the way that Christianity has metastasized into something cancerous and just for them to, you know, absolve themselves of all sin because they're reading the right book. Screw you. you you've lost the concept of it a long time ago. Yeah. Well said, Jimmy. And don't curse. Cause I get, I get hate mail from our viewers. They blame oh. me if you curse. <laughs> well, you've had a bad influence on me. No, I but, know they, but, they, um, they, they get upset, but, uh, yeah, like the paradigm between religion and politics now is scary. And there's supposed to be separation of church and state for a reason. Yeah, well, I talk about another, you know, yeah. constitutional promise. It was the right to worship as you see fit. And there, that uh, Lauren Boebert's comments were the second one, like, right? Wasn't Gosser or somebody recently was like, or somebody was like, there's only one religion in America. Michael Flynn at a like, QAnon event. Right. There you go. Exactly. Like, hey, there's only one God and we're going to tell you who that is. And if you don't believe us, I'm going to stick this sword through your gut. Right. That's well, what and Christianity was when they had these purges and, you know, all this like persecution, you know, like people do evil things in the name of religion because most religions let's face it they're concepts for men to remain dominant over their followers or women and stuff you know this stuff is made up by men okay like <laughs> jesus is not going to come back and be like yeah mike flynn that's my dude you know like he's going to be like you guys are out of your freaking minds i gave you masks i gave you smart scientists you know that came up with vaccines it's two years later and you're still dodging these bullets Mm -hmm. Right. Because you got political people exploiting it. Right. Everybody is vaccinated at Fox News. Everybody who's working on Rupert Murdoch's yacht is vaccinated. OK, his house in Mayfair, his townhouse on Fifth Avenue all have Le Crisette cookware in them. I promise you. OK, when his cock of is prepared, it's done so in a fine French enamel Dutch oven. OK, yeah. but they went off on Kamala Harris because she bought a five hundred dollar pot. You know, the same people that are riding around in $60 pickup trucks that they're getting on four-year leases with no money <laughs> down, getting 17 miles to the gallon. Talk about wasting money, but it's a culture war. And, it, it, and it's so effective, Jimmy, because that the theme this week is going to be that loss of domestic tranquility because that wears you down. 
people get like, I can't even deal with this anymore. I just got to shut off the phone. And obviously social media is gasoline on these fires and it's designed to get you angry and to keep paying attention and stuff and think that your opinion has to immediately be out there on something, you know, and I'm on top of that list. Obviously, you know, I'm tweeting all the time and uh, cause I'm pissed, you know, I went to sleep pissed. I didn't want to, but it, it it's like, you know, people don't really fully understand, I think, what went down, you know, what Trump truly is. He's a con man his whole life. He was a criminal. Had he not grown up wealthy, he would have been dead or in jail by the time he was 21, just for how he treated the people around him. Okay. If he was a poor kid in the Bronx, he would have gotten his ass kicked by somebody else's dad, you know, or murdered by some girl's brother that he assaulted. The guy was a known predator when I worked at NBC. You know, they would tell women, like, stay away from him. You don't want to be alone with him. He would have cameras in Trump Tower in the contestants' suites that they gave him. You know, he used to have these, like, beauty pageants, and he would, like, invite the girls to the U.S. Open and then molest them in the skybox when they went to the bathroom. And I worked on the U.S. Open. Like, this stuff was no secret. And no matter how much you scream it from the rooftops, the mainstream media never really wanted to look at that because there was a buck to be made. Jeff Zucker knew this stuff, but he's at NBC at the time and he made a fortune off a celebrity apprentice on a Sunday night, which is a hard night to make any money in TV, you know, until they got the football or whatever. So, so a lot of Americans were duped into believing that this con man had their best interests at heart. And then the whole thing has been packaged by all these right-wing nutbags and by the emergence of Marjorie Taylor Greens and all these sort of professional trolls that are causing all this disturbance and this smoke. But while this is happening, the folks at the state level are gerrymandering districts, right? They're passing these laws. And in, in Wisconsin now, like 80% of the representatives sent to Washington are going to be Republicans, no matter how it breaks, no matter if the more Democrats show up to vote, it's skewed to send Republicans to D.C. And that's happening in four or five states. And that's what nobody's paying attention to. You know, those voter suppression bills, like we didn't get a voter's bill of rights because Manchin and Cinema are paid by the Koch brothers to not let it happen. You know, so while all this distraction and not just distraction, these are real issues, but while all this kind of really fiery rhetoric is happening. And while these trolls are sucking up all the oxygen, people are doing real kind of damage behind the scene. And folks are going to wake up and they're going to be like, what happened? How did we just lose the Senate and the Congress? And then it's too late. Then it's just a slow descent into authoritarianism. Trump will engineer some kind of pardon where he gets to pick, you know, Ivanka becomes president or something, you know, <laughs> as long as he never gets prosecuted. My, my personal gut is he would cut a deal with DeSantis, even though he hates him. You know, he, he'd pick like <laughs> a favorite son and say, you know, I get to keep half of the money that the RNC raises, you can never go after me or my family and I'll, I'll give you my blessing, you know? And they all know this, the GOP knows he's the kingmaker. They know he's got over $80 million in a war chest, which he'll keep for himself, but he'll threaten to primary his opponents. And there's no men in the GOP. These are small little like insects, right? I shouldn't say that word about a human being because I like insects better than I like Kevin McCarthy. But we see the moral fiber of these men. They have none. They're Mike Pence's. They're spineless cowards that are afraid of their own shadows, their own humanity, their own sexuality in many cases, right? Mm -hmm. They're afraid to be who they obviously are to anybody who's ever met them, right? But they live in a religion that says, I can't be this way, you know? And so 
that metastasizes into aggression, you know, and into promoting authoritarianism because it makes them feel better about who they are, you know, and it's dangerous. Yeah. I don't think this country's ever faced the danger <laughs> it really does now. And, and, you know, and I was hoping to be lighthearted on this podcast this week. But <laughs> you're in trouble, folks. You're, you're already like so close to like crossing a line that you can't come back from. And I don't know if enough people realize that. So many people want to be like, I got my blue wave emoji. We're just going to vote them out. Well, you're not. If they're passing these bills, you're going to have minority ruling the majority. And that has been a successful, like a successful dynamic for authoritarian places, you know, and, and awful immoral places like South Africa to rule for a very long time. Apartheid was the rule for a long time. There was a lot of governments, all of Europe went into Africa and they colonized it and abused those people forever and stole their resources <laughs> forever until it finally they couldn't anymore. So who are we to think it couldn't happen here? We're not even the smartest kids on the block by a mile, right? Germans were a hell of a lot smarter than your average American in the 30s. They were the highest educated country in Europe and they fell for that shit. Well, and you know, when they burned down the, the government building in, in, uh, in Germany, the Reichstag, Hitler came there and was like, had pride about it. You know, he wasn't, oh my God, the government's burning, you know? All the symbol, if you haven't watched it yet, watch the mini series about tyrants on Netflix. Okay, it goes through all the different ones throughout history to this point, including Kim Jong il, the current leader of uh, North Korea. Trump's got all the characteristics, you know, all the same things that they utilize to try to dupe their people. Trump's doing the same thing. I mean, watch the documentary, it, it explains it a lot better than I can in, in a short bit, but it breaks it all down, and the same indicators are there. 45 well there you go so check that out folks jimmy's picks yeah. and look he, you know you mentioned kim jong-il trump has a picture of them meeting like two lovers over the north korean like the line of demarcation or whatever right the, they wrote love they, letters right but it, literally the picture is on his wall at mar-a-lago and if you saw his photo op with little murderer little doughboy murderer right right that picture is right behind him like oh, it was the most absurdest thing with those idiots giving a thumbs up and that picture of a guy who killed his own like brother-in-law with an anti-aircraft gun or his uncle or whatever, you know, yeah. like the fact that Trump would have a monster like that on his wall. That's like having a picture of Charles Manson. Kim Jong-il <laughs> starves his people to death. I mean, it's it's horrific. You know, they're in work camps starving to death like he is as big a monster as this world has ever seen. He's like Pol Pot. It's horrific, you know, and, and Trump doesn't mind that. He loves that brutality, that toxic masculinity brutality has always been a part of Trump world. It's why Don Jr. has the guns and shoots elephants. It's why they would have Hell's Angels and Chuck Zito at the after parties. They were trying to, you know, UFC fighting, all this kind of like the, the trappings of weak men, right? You know, mm -hmm. I'm a tough guy. No, you're not. You're a <laughs> dude. Anybody with a Punisher sticker on their car is a, is a coward because you need to show people you're tough. Real tough guys don't do that. Real tough guys don't need to advertise it. Inferior men do that because they know deep down they're inferior because they had a daddy who used to slap them around like Trump did, you know, and tell him he was an idiot and that Trump Jr. does to his, his kids. 
Look at a picture of Don Jr. with his children sometime. And you'll see four abused kids, <laughs> three abused kids. They hate him. He just posted another picture the other day. And people are like, how do you even post this? <laughs> you know, okay. your kids yeah. are like one phone call away from child protective services. You never seen a sadder looking group of kids because they pass it on. They pass it on, you know, the abuse and Trump was abused by his dad. And he was like a bad seed from the beginning. Right. It was like Jeffrey Dahmer or something like a psychopath. He really is. I mean, people laugh. They don't understand. He started grooming my friend when she was 12 years old. She ended up in Jeffrey Epstein's townhouse. And she said, no, you will not believe the stuff they did to women in there. Not just having sex with, you know, prostitutes. I mean, abusing violent, horrific stuff. That was part of the cheap thrill that these billionaires did that they could get away with this stuff. You know, because you're a bit rich guy, you can go to any bar and pick up a girl or whatever, right? You're a billionaire. It's like you're going to have people that are going to give you attention no matter what. But it becomes this status to like, no, I need a 14 year old virgin and stuff. That's what it becomes about with these wealthy men. And a lot more of them were in on it than just Donald Trump. That's why you never heard about Jeffrey Epstein. That's why they whacked him in a, in a jail cell. Because you had Prince Andrew and you have all these American like billionaires and Giuliani and all these other freaks that were in on it. And, you know, Donald Barr, Bill Barr's father. So it's it's the same thing. It's like nobody wants to look at how seedy this is. But you let a seedy psychopath have an enormous amount of influence over half of this country. And you're not going to rest that back now because you have all these. As I said, you know, these Lauren Boberts and MGTs and all these little trolls running around exploiting it, you know, mm-hmm. making it stronger. The phone's ringing, folks. I'm just going to let it ring. And, and that's going to become that's like a weapon. Like Putin already launched a war against the U.S. It just happened differently than the Cold War, you know, or a hot war. And he's going to he's going to go into Ukraine this week. Right. <laughs> he, and nobody's going to do anything about it. Right. <laughs> Because when we could have done something about it, Trump was cutting side deals and holding back military aid from the Ukraine because he was trying to pressure them into saying Biden was crooked so he could win the next election. Like people forgot about that. We let a sovereign nation basically get, you know, weakened and and, and harassed and attacked for the last five years from Russia. And now it's going to get invaded and there's not going to be a damn thing the world can do about it. Because when we could have done something about it, we had a mob boss trying to get Giuliani to commit a shakedown so he could stay in office for a few more years and grift the United States. That's where we're at. And Biden and whoever ain't going to get us out of it overnight. Well, and, you know, one event that I think gets lost because of all the things that Trump did, you know, it's the bed of nails theory. You do one bad thing, it hurts you. You do a thousand bad things, it doesn't. One event that stood out to me when I thought about it today, because we're dealing with that infrastructure bill that just passed, Joe Biden was able to do something that Trump talked about for four years, but could never do. Do you know what the original purpose of that meeting in Trump Tower was when they talked about like Charlottesville and he got really angry? It was supposed to be about infrastructure. That was supposed to be when Trump was going to reveal his grand plan of how to get us highways and all the things that we need. But no, he made it about him and the Charlottesville thing. And as he's leaving... Instead of saying, oh, what a horrible tragedy that a woman was run over by protesters, he says, oh, I have a, I have a winery in Charlottesville. Right. You know, he's promoting his business. He's yeah. on Team Trump. Yeah, uh, the, and yeah. all the kids are, and that's all they've ever been on. Right. You know, it's his biggest scam. And just sadly, America was ripe 
to get yeah. scammed because of the domestic tranquility. Because people thought it would feel good to hate their neighbors, to res resent immigrants. You should be kissing their ass and trying to learn something from them and welcoming them into your community. Every time I get a, like, I'm impressed these days with service, you know, or a waiter or like a, a tradesman, it's always an immigrant. It's always an immigrant, never fail. And every time I have a problem, it's an American, quote unquote, you know, it's a white guy who takes my check as a contractor and doesn't fucking call back for six months. Right. Because there's a sense of entitlement and stuff like you want people that are eager to work and, and, you know, and work their way up the ladder and build a better you know, country. But it, it's hard to explain to people you know, that they're really getting screwed by Jeff Bezos, <laughs> you know, they're really getting <laughs> screwed by these jobs that like are never going to lift them into the middle class, that it doesn't exist anymore, that it's basically one percenters and then everybody else struggling, you know, a $400 medical bill shouldn't break you, you know, break your bank. And it does for most families now, you know, or for a huge majority, like it, it, it's disgusting. It's sad. And you fall below that line, you're on the streets. Too many Americans are living too close to peril. And with that comes addiction, depression, violence, all kinds of sort of byproducts of living the wrong way, of inequality, of a lack of balance, of a lack of nutrition holistically. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I do, man. Right. And and that's where we're at. We're sick. Like we need Oprah. We need somebody to come <laughs> in and say, y'all all need a timeout. You know what I mean? Like we yeah. need to heal this nation and fast. Right. Cause now we're not, we're just throwing salt on the wounds. And it's like the longest journey in life, they say, is from your head to your heart. Right. And we're all in our heads now. And we're all angry. And we're all in our like Amagalala, whatever it's called. That you know that, but you're you're oh the Abdullah Ablangana. Yeah, right. Whatever that gland <laughs> that sort of regulates fear and stuff. You know, we're all reacting to things from fear and anger. Cause underneath anger is just fear, right? You're just angry because you're scared of something. You feel threatened. Somebody's gonna take something you don't have and you're not gonna get what you want right? That's a very common trait in addiction. You know, I have that sort of thing about anything. I'll react to it like, oh God, my life's over. You know, like I'm never mm -hmm. going to make it or whatever. What is making it anyway, right? <laughs> making it is just being present and having some peace in your life. You know, it's not career goals, but my point is that's an easy thing to exploit. And Trump knew how to exploit that instinctually because he's an addict himself. Right. So he lives in self-centered fear and resentment. That's his natural state. And he knows how to trigger it in others because that what he did was manipulate people. You know, first it'd be like, I need you to do this for me. I need you to do me this favor. Just find me these eleven thousand four hundred and seventy three votes. That's all I need. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. You heard mm -hmm. him with Raffensburger almost a year ago, you know, mm -hmm. and that alone should have landed him in jail. You had a tape recording of the president of the United States calling up a secretary of state and trying to shake him down to overturn an election. And we're six weeks away from the anniversary of that, the one year anniversary of that. And nothing was done. Nothing was done about it. And that's, that's who I've seen all my whole life with Trump. He mm -hmm. gets away with everything and he's getting away with it now. And thankfully, some of these people on Twitter are like, dudes, what are you doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? It wasn't that big of a victory to you know, subpoena Steve Bannon, right? Or, or indict him or whatever. He's just gonna use it to promote his freaking podcast, right? You need to round these guys up as the treasonous villains that they are 
and have public hearings. So you lay out the facts for America, you know, just like the Nuremberg trials, right? Germany would have hid that in a heartbeat if we let them, what they did in the camps and stuff. American troops made German citizens go in there and see what you did, see what happened here. So it never happened again. And now we're hiding authoritarians, white supremacists, anti-Semites. We're allowing them to get away with attacking the U.S. Capitol, murdering police officers. And it's a year later and nobody's held accountable. I mean, that's well, crazy. That's crazy, dude. It is. And, you know, let's let's think back to like when Clinton was president. OK, this is during his impeachment and that whole thing, that whole craziness, which kind of got this divide started. That was the beginning of that. But can you imagine uh, Bill Clinton being in the in the White House or even in, in private life, taking a picture with Timothy McVeigh after, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing? They would have him impeached within five minutes if something like that surfaced, you, you know, but that again, man, it's uh -huh. it's so polar. It's so polarized. We can't even come together on basic ideas of, of sovereignty. Because we're getting played. You know, yeah. we're not calling it out as it is. There's bad actors. Joe Manchin works for the Koch brothers, right? He just said on Thanksgiving that Biden should reopen the Keystone XL pipeline. That's a pipeline that brings shale oil down from the tar pits in Alberta into Nebraska, right? That's the crappy kind of oil that, that is hard to crack, right? Cracking is, is how you turn it into like usable oil, right? It's a process. Guess who refined that process and owns most of the you know, manufacturing for that process, the Koch brothers, right? That's their main game, right? Fracking and, and crude oil and moving stuff through pipelines. He works for them. So he, on Thanksgiving, he's literally like, Biden needs to reopen the Keystone XL pipeline. And he uses it because of high gas prices. We need to get a reserve again. No, because your boys told you to do that. And now you're going to hold up, you know, the Senate's part of, of the infrastructure bill all through December. All through December, it's going to be him and Manchin. Watch, Jimmy, in your timeline every day. Well, we don't know what she wants, but she's not ready to vote on it for this because they're bought and paid for. Mm -hmm. And we're not calling it out like it is. We're, we're acting like we can play by the old rules. Well, we need him. Otherwise, we'd have a Republican from West Virginia. Well, you already do have a Republican, you know, <laughs> maybe show what he is to the people. You know, and some of them will come around and you'll get a charismatic leader who challenges him. I find it very hard to believe there's not a natural born leader in the state of West Virginia, you know, yeah. who's smart enough to represent his own people and see they're being exploited by a dude who lives in a houseboat and drives a Maserati. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I saw a story on uh, Rachel Maddow the other day, uh, Kevin Strickland. He was a guy that was released after a uh, 43 years of time served in Missouri. And because of the rules that they have on the books, Missouri doesn't give out any kind of money for wrongly served prison time. Had that, you know, if you apply it to somewhere else, he's probably owed about $3 million. And thankfully they have a GoFundMe page that's given him, you know, about one and a half million dollars to use how he see fits to take care of himself. But how can Trump, you know, grift from our government as president of the United States, the chief law enforcement officer of our country, and this guy who, you know, was put in prison through no fault of his own, never committed the crime, can't even get a dollar from our government. I know. I know. And Trump's you know, two never systems. Paid, right. I know. And he never paid taxes. Right. right. 
We still haven't seen his taxes. Have we? The updated ones? Nope. And that's what I'm talking about, Jimmy. We accepted this. People treat you how you allow them to treat you, Jimmy. That's one of the rules in life. People only get away with what you allow them to get away with. If you stand Mm -hmm. up to a bully and punch him in the throat, he's going to think twice about calling you fat Jimmy or whatever he said (laughs) to you, right? I'm not saying he told me, right? Yeah, no, yeah. I've been called fat Jimmy in the past, so yeah. Well, first of all, that's a mob boss name. That's a baller name, okay? That's like, you know, Fat Tony Salerno. Like, you know when you're, hey, guys, Fat Jimmy wants to see you. Fat Jimmy's a made man. Right, you're in trouble. (laughs) Fat Jimmy's calling you to the back of the bottom bing. You know it's, you've done something wrong. Make you a deal you you can't refuse. So that's a baller (laughs) name. I would take it. But anyway, you know my point. Punch a bully in the nuts. They think twice. That's the thing with Trump. Nobody ever stood up to him. And people were like, how come you talk about him? Because I know what he is. I know he's a freaking coward. Yeah, there's mob guys around him, but he screwed most of those guys over. It's really just the Russians left, you know? And yeah, they're brutal and ruthless, you know? But they're also a dumpster fire in their own right, you know? So if people had just called him out, but it got too messy and nobody wanted to deal with it, and he's also wealthy enough, like, yeah, he's a fake billionaire, but he was wealthy enough to tie you up in court forever. Summer Zervos just had to drop her suit because she couldn't afford the legal bills. He assaulted her and he got away with it because, you know, after five years of paying 700 bucks an hour to a lawyer, most people run out of money. Trump has law firms that'll do it for free for the publicity. I mean, they don't do it for free. They take the money, but now he's got, he grifts his followers right he sends out 15 texts a day. you have the republican party paying for part of his sdny stuff that's exactly. wild right there exactly that <laughs> yeah. should just i mean that should have people in the street with pitchforks <laughs> you know well and, and i'm tapping into like the immature part of myself i'm not actually calling for this but i am surprised with all of the you know ted cruz lauren bobert how has how have none of those guys at least had a punch headed toward their face with with what they're saying? I, if I was working with them, I would have a hard time not punching them in the face. I would take the consequence. I would, I, I would go to jail or face the felony, even as an elected official. I know I'm going to get out of there soon. It's worth. I don't know. I would like to see Eric Swallow or somebody throw a punch before this thing is over, just, <laughs> just to see the clip. Yeah. yeah, I'd like to Madison Cawthorn, just like roll him oh. fucking Anacostia or something. Yeah, maybe you incorporate his wheelchair in that whole thing. You know, he loves his wheelchair. That guy's a psycho. That guy, he he's, not, he's not worth our time, but that's a troubled dude. He's He's got trouble, you know, written all over him, like deep trauma. He was probably an asshole before he got in a car. He wreck, thinks he's Professor X or something. Like dude, he just he, needs to give it up. He, tell, he told people after the Rittenhouse thing to get violent, <laughs> you know, like that. That should be against the law right there. And there's no censure. They, yeah, they censure Paul Gosser, but like drag him out of there in handcuffs. His own family's telling you he's a psycho killer. Madison Cawthorn is clearly looking to commit violence. He's inciting people to commit violence. He just had some other outrageous thing he said the other day. They all hide behind the Constitution to bring it back to the theme of this show. You think Madison Cawthorn can sit there and name amendments in a Constitution? <laughs> no. you know the guy's homeschooled and he writes like a four-year-old girl you know yeah. like, he's got his uh, britney spears pen you know right. with, with the glitter what he likes you know? no it's so. just insane There's a bunch <laughs> of morons you know and, and like we're accepting it and, and we have to stop accepting it and, and ultimately i do have faith in the american people that they will see through the ruse they, but yeah. 
you know, it's going to require a different way of sort of receiving information. It's going to require taking some action against Fox News. You're not going to save this republic while Fox News gets to do what they do with impunity because their reach is just too vast. And yeah, you can say their numbers are down, but you got CNN, which is Fox News light, right? They're doing everything they can to say, oh, Biden's screwing up gas prices. You should be paying $5 a gallon for gas. They've been doing it in Europe for decades. Gas should be much more of a luxury product than it is because it's destroying the planet. It's why you're getting all these extreme storms, okay? So you don't have a right to fill up a giant pickup truck that gets 17 miles to the gallon and then bitch about it and then elect an authoritarian, you know, like because you don't want to pay high gas, gas prices. And if you don't think it's related, you know, if you don't think CNN and Joe Manchin and all these guys are working in concert with each other to keep that unrest That's not how you measure the health of a nation is what it costs at the gas pump. We shouldn't be using carbon fuels anymore. We should be phasing them out as quickly as we can, you know, and finding alternative modes of public transportation. It's not just electric cars because you got to burn coal to get electricity, right? But we, we should be tackling that problem. And in Europe, at least they're confronting it and they drive small cars. We're, we're, we're just in denial. Cars are getting bigger. Like, I cannot believe it. You know, I'm a child of the 70s, okay? The first big gas prices crisis was when I was a kid. And that's when Hondas and all these tiny cars came in. And it's like, hey, look, you can fill the whole thing up for 20 bucks and go 300 miles. Or you could drive a Dodge Duster that gets 10 miles a gallon, you know, which my mom drove. She was always in these old ass jalopy muscle cars, which I hated at the time, you uh-huh. know? And now they'd be like awesome to have one of them just to restore it or something. But like Plymouth Furies and these just crazy big cars. And uh, that's just insane to me that 50 years later, people are still driving these giant like gas guzzling behemoths. And then you have politicians sort of dumbing down the populace to be like, Biden's paying nothing. You know, Biden's doing nothing and gas is five dollars a gallon. I drove from New York to Philly, from Philly back to New York. You pass a lot of goddamn gas stations, okay? because you got to go through New Jersey, which is one big gas station and oil refinery (laughs) with a couple beaches and some pizza parlors. Let's be real. Right. Okay. (laughs) And some beautiful women and some great rock and rollers. You know, I got love for Jersey, but it's basically the petrol state, right? You, you, the whole thing is an oil refinery. You know, you get in outside of Ma- Manhattan and you drive through the wetlands and all these areas that were once gorgeous, beautiful, like natural wonders of the world. And they've been turned into like shipping ports and refineries and stuff. And it's, it's sad, but that's all for fossil fuels, right? That's all modern stuff. And then you drive down through Philly and you pass all these gas stations. And I had like the MSNBC and CNN on the, you know, Xfinity, whatever you call the radio thing, mm-hmm. and uh, Sirius XM, where I've actually been a guest on several shows. But anyway, uh, all you heard the whole two days was about gas prices. You know what I mean? Like, that's just, you're getting manipulated. There's more complex issues. Yeah, it sucks. You got to pay more at the pump and you got to adjust accordingly. But it's not the metric of how you measure a successful president who just inherited a global pandemic a con man who was just feeding his own family, grifting every dime he could out of the federal budget, right? He spent $150 million going to golf courses and they're mad about a vice president who spent $500 of her own money on some beautiful cookware 
Le Creuset is the best cookware in the world, Jimmy. It's enamel coated, like incredible stuff, you know, <laughs> and the cheap Teflon shit they sell you at Walmart will give you cancer. John Oliver <laughs> just did an episode on that. So that stuff's poison. If you use okay. nonstick stuff, it'll eventually get to you. And most humans in America have the chemical that is off-gassed by that in their system already. Just an aside, John Oliver did a brilliant episode on that. So right. it, nobody brings that up, but that's the other side of like, Le Croissette is like, that's enamel, you know, on like cast iron cookware. It's like a healthy thing to do, you know? Right. Right. So, but my point is they're, they're manipulating these people with, with these sort of catchphrases and these things that hit everybody, you know, in their pocketbook. And, and somebody like CNN knows it's easier to run that kind of stuff over the holiday weekend because it's going to get people emotionally. And it's easier than explaining these complexities, you know, explaining that Joe Manchin is working for the Koch brothers and he's going to obfuscate and stand in the way of progress in the Senate now because that's the next thing on his list. Because we negotiated with them before, and that's the problem. That's why they say you don't sort of do business with a mob because they're always going to ask you for more. And that's what these guys are doing now because they know they have him over a barrel. So it's easier to just focus on that or let Chris Christie have his upteenth interview, <laughs> right? Yeah. So he can sell oh, his man. book that didn't even sell 12,000 copies and make the New York Times bestseller list. But it's easier to have that like corpulent con man on yet another show. Yeah, I'm going to tell you a story about Chris Christie. You'll probably like Jimmy. Okay. He, was a, he was a starting catcher on his high school baseball team when he was a junior, right? Mm -hmm. And then an all-state catcher was transferring into his district, like a real badass. And Christie's dad intervened to get that kid's transfer like nullified and stuff because he didn't want his son to lose his position on the baseball team. Yeah. And I think it didn't work. And Christie had to sit on the bench most of the season anyway. But like, that's the kind of guy he is. He mm -hmm. when he was a free holder, he lied to the cameras about his opponent. He's an awful guy. And he's <laughs> always been an awful guy. And yeah. he's not that experienced. He got lucky, he, you know, as I said, after Bush appointed him because the Democrats were giving Bush anything he wanted. So Chris Christie wanted to be the federal prosecutor and Democrats were like, all right, just let him, you know, because he was the Bush <laughs> campaign's lawyer during Bush, Bush's 2000 campaign. Right. Okay. Which is why Nicole Wallace tore him a new one, because she knows all that. She, you know, she knows her old boss basically made Christie's career because he was a prosecutor for two years and then he ran for governor and won because after 9-11, we were in this law and order kind of mode. You know, Republicans were very popular then because they were seen as, you know, the guys that could tackle terrorism, you know, and in, in reality, they were the guys that were profiting off the wars and making a right. fortune and they were going to ride off into the sunset and go finger painting in Texas. But, you know, at the <laughs> time, everybody was down for this and it was a mistake, like it always right. is, because it was a more complex issue. Whenever anything is knee jerk, let's just wave a flag and kick some ass. That's the wrong answer. Go well, deep, look deeper, you know. And you've talked about it, just the, the way it works you know, the fraternity of the mediocre white man. The other half of that is that Chris Christie knows even with the GOP at this state, he has to continue to shake hands with the, the friends that be, you know, the powers that be so that that system is maintained. You know, it's, you get help from friends as long as you help the friends back. You know, it's a very uh, transactional thing as Trump, everything that Trump does is transactional. You know, there's no emotional kind of energy exchange with Trump because 
it's purely how he can use people. Yeah, it's all transactional. And the yeah. kids are transactional. They're Jared and Ivanka had a transactional wedding, you know, yeah. Wendy Dang Murdoch. They broke up when I first started working with them. They had broken up because Jared wasn't down with it. You know, Trump would call him the Jew, you know, is the Jew yeah. here yet? Like he was like, these guys are idiots, you know, because yeah. Kushner's, whatever you say about them, they were a little more sophisticated than Trump's are naturally. You know, right. besides Mary Trump, who's who's great and extremely intelligent, the rest of them are dumbasses. <laughs> you know, because they're just they're growing up with a dad who put gold leaf on everything and <laughs> ate cheeseburgers. It wasn't like they're cultured people. You know, right. like they grew up going to like Miss Teen USA contests and stuff. Like yeah. so, yeah. Kushner, Kushner was out of there originally. They were just dating when I first met him, and then they came back and all of a sudden got married. And that's because Wendy Dang Murdoch took Ivanka on a cruise in the Mediterranean off the coast of Turkey and was like, you need to get back with him. And Wendy Dang Murdoch was Putin's girlfriend at the time. Okay. Yeah. She, she'd been married to Rupert Murdoch. Like she was some say a Chinese spy, but she was very involved in sort of like, she's a Ghislaine Maxwell type, right? Okay. Somebody who was like pulling the strings behind the scenes and said, you know, this is a marriage of convenience and you need to get back together for power. And it worked out real well for Kushner. Because he got to like get his own dossiers on everybody for four years in the White House and sell secrets to the Middle East. Yeah. And now KSA, you know, Saudi Arabia is going to pay him for his new wealth fund and he's going to make billions of dollars and be, be a bond villain for the rest of his life. He's not going to be held accountable, right? The Trump kids are not going to be held accountable. You know, maybe Eric Trump will face some charges. They'll throw him <laughs> to the wolves. And who wouldn't? As I said on Twitter, he's the burner son anyway. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And they, they found out he used a burner phone to talk to Mark Meadows on January 6th. Yeah. That alone should be like, stop the presses, have the FBI drive in a convoy up to Trump Tower tomorrow morning and drag that dude out in handcuffs. What do you mean he was using a burner phone to communicate with the chief of staff of the White House when the government was getting attacked? You know, when the other three people in the secession of power were inside a building, you have the president's son on a burner phone. I've never had a burner phone. I used to do drugs. Like I didn't <laughs> ever need a burner phone. Like that's some next level narcos type shit. And that's who these guys are. They are mobsters. They are career criminals, but they did it in the open and they did it by doing enough business with the establishment that it made them untouchable. That's why I'm always pointing that stuff out with CNN and NBC and stuff. People didn't really want to go after them because it's too much of a headache. New York Times doesn't really want to write about all the like sexual predation that Trump has done because it's unseemly. And there's other people that did business with Trump that are going to get caught into that, that we own stocks in and that I need to write a letter so my kid gets into pen. It's all intermingled. And Trump, as dumb as he was, understood that he wasn't allowed into society because he was an idiot. Right. So he couldn't get into Maidstone. This is a nice club in East Hampton. And, you know, Fifth Avenue society never accepted him. He's from Queens and he's boorish, you know, and he married these trashy looking women that it's just that's not how it rolls. Right. But he was able to buy his way into a certain amount of the firmament of, you know, New York City political life. That's why the Clintons were at his wedding. You know, and I, obviously they, they regret that. But that's how it is. He bought fancy friends. Here's my question to you, and it's probably just me being naively positive about how I think this world could work, but 
you know, we were in the Middle East for 20 years when we knew that it wasn't a winnable war. Does there come a point when Putin and these folks are like, all right, we've made our money. We can we can let them have democracy again. Or is it just a continuation that they hope to maintain? And then we become like serfs, basically. We are <laughs> like serfs, basically. Yeah. dude. That's what yeah. I was saying about income inequality. Right. Your bigger fear on that is your American oligarchs, your Jeff Bezos is. What is his name? The Tesla dude is clearly oh, out. Elon. Yeah, that guy's a Bond villain, okay? And his family money was made off of emerald mines in South Africa, where they basically enslaved people in the apartheid state to work the mines. And then he made a bunch of money and came here. That guy's going to end up fleeing the country. Mark my words, listeners, okay? Elon Musk will be in Switzerland in the next five to 10 years. He'll have to leave this country because he's just so shady and so out of his mind. But that's where your serfdom will come from because you're working at Walmart or Dollar Tree or one of these places. You're not climbing out of that poverty. Not if the government won't give you health care and Medicaid. Joe Manchin cut free community college out of this bill that we're just talking about. That was one of the things he was like, nope, that's a deal breaker. You got to take it out. And Biden took it out. Why does a guy like that want people not to have an education, especially when he represents the, the 50th state in terms of poverty? and education, because that's what the Koch brothers want. The Koch brothers took their model from what their dad learned by building oil refineries in Russia under Stalin, okay? People don't know that, but that's where the Koch brothers came from. Their father, Frederick Koch, like was good at, as I said, you know, this gets complicated, but cracking this crude oil is the the process you use to refine it. The oil they had in Russia was especially rough. It was just like the cheap shit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And and, and the Koch brothers, and Frederick Koch, whatever, the dad stole this other guy's invention, basically, took this <laughs> other guy's patent where he started in Kansas and stuff and took it as his own and patented it and stuff. And so that process of cracking, refining this oil was very helpful in Russia because they had a lower grade oil, right? So Koch was able to go in there and do it really cheaply and stuff. And then he basically like decided he didn't like Stalin. And, and came back to the U.S. and set up his dynasty and then became one of the founders, you know, of John Birch Society and all this kind of stuff and got involved in libertarianism and stuff. OK, one of the first things that they funded sort of being against was Social Security, unions, things like that, things that work against your interests if you want a bunch of serfs. You know, if you want an endless supply of people to work in your factories and not be able to do anything about it because they're working for the company store sign up for libertarianism. So that's why they want people sort of dumb, ignorant, impoverished, unhealthy, because there's an endless supply. They're not going to make it up that ladder far enough to threaten you. That's also why you have things like no abortion and stuff. So you have an endless supply of workers, right? That sounds crude, but all these things work together and you have to call it out as such. So that's where Manchin's coming from. That's where they couch these ideas of like, it's communism to have free health care. No, it's not. It's common sense is what it is. You shouldn't <laughs> yeah. have to pay for that. If we're paying for missiles and bombs and all this kind of crap to pay for armies that can be called up on a moment's notice by Dick Cheney to go invade some country so Kellogg Brown Root can have a more profitable year, and we got to pay for that, then we should be able to pay for people to get educated, you know, to have Wi-Fi, to have health care. But he was against all that. He was against expanding Medicaid. You have to ask these people why they're doing it. 
You can't accept their answers. And, and too many Democrats are accepting Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema, and not looking at the deeper motivations behind these eminently corrupt people. I'm, I'm going to go even a level deeper because you talked about how it's difficult to find a job. It, you know, they say there's so many jobs available. Does it pay a living wage? You know, one, one of the things that I run into is like, it costs a lot of money to look for work, <laughs> whether you're talking about like clothes, uh, transportation to interviews, uh, internet access to apply for jobs. Like that's what this infrastructure bill will address, but that's a common problem that it doesn't allow poor people to elevate themselves in any way. And that's part yeah. of the whole thing. That's yeah. the point yeah. I'm trying to make. Yeah. It's yeah. very expensive to be poor in this country, Jimmy. Uh -huh. If you're rich, you get low interest loans. People are giving you stuff. It's like being a celebrity. You get all the stuff for free. When you can afford to buy the sunglasses, they give them to you for free because you go into the Grammys and they're in their gift bag, right? It's expensive to be poor. Poor people pay a higher rate to just survive. They have to go to check cashing places and pay a commission to cash their checks. They have to get payday loans, these draconian loans that Trump and Betsy DeVos put back into circulation and in his administration, these things that are just ripping people off, you know, credit cards where you're paying 20% interest and stuff right? That's all designed to keep people subservient, getting on a bus, you know, and going two hours to work at the Dollar Tree for eight bucks an hour. Well, the CEO of Dollar Tree makes $10 million a year. Mm. How does a guy make $10 million a year in a store where everything costs a buck or a buck and a quarter, where it's just a bunch of crap, you know, that, that like they bought surplus from, from China, Right. And the guy who's running that business is making $10 million a year. And the people working in those stores are working 12 hour shifts at seven bucks an hour. That is, I don't know if feudalism is the right word, but that's what you're describing. That's a nation of serfs. And they're right at the point where you're never going to get above that level, especially if we're sort of warring internally. Right. If we've lost domestic tranquility because everyone's mad at everyone else. And you're not seeing who you should really be mad about. And that's what they want. That's what they want. So that's the end of my rant on domestic tranquility. We'll talk for a few more minutes here. I don't want to, you know, we're coming up on an hour. I don't want to bum the listeners out too much, Jimmy. But, you know, I was in Philly this week, as I said, and I, Philly has had some great music, man. Philly music, you know, Philly soul has always had a big influence on me, you know, from Gamble and Huff, Teddy Pendergrass. I worked with somebody who was, was one of his managers and uh, my friend, Lisa Barbarese. And uh, she's Cindy Lauper's manager for the last bunch of years, but she was Teddy's guy. Teddy was great. There was a guy named Jeffrey Gaines when I was a kid. who's this incredible singer songwriter. And I'm down with the whole like Roots crew and Adam Blackstone, who I mentioned last week, who's one of the best MDs you'll get in live TV. He's a great bass player. So Philly just kicked out so much kick-ass music. You know, and we're going back to Coltrane lived in Philly, you know, Char he saw Charlie Parker play as a kid, like, so it was cool to be there and be reminded of what a rich cultural heritage that city has. And so I've been on a Philly kick. So I listened to some boys to men last night and, and, and put on a boys to men documentary. And my other friend, Amanda was, was one of boys to men's like tour managers in their height, you know, and they came out when I was probably 20 or something. So I was a little older than their demo, like if you were in high school, but I think people forget how amazing Boys to Men were. Yeah. And they, they kicked off that whole boy band surge, you know? 
Right. Like they really, you know, you had, I guess, new, new kids on the block, you know, was out of Boston. Yeah. And, uh, but like boys to men sort of perfected that four part harmony, just, you know, really kick-ass sound. And some of the boy bands, you know, they did five part harmony because they needed the cute one, the mysterious one, (laughs) the goofy one, you know, they had the formula down by then, but, uh, anyway, it was just interesting. Jill Scott, is from Philly. Jill Scott is probably, you've probably never heard of Jill Scott, Jimmy, but she's a badass. And uh, you wouldn't know any of this, son. I'm just educating you. Oh, you yeah. Know? So I, I like you, regional music, you know, like yeah. great scenes come out of like a place. Like everyone's talking about the Beatles this week, you know. Part of the magic is that these guys came from Liverpool, you know, part of their sound were the influences that came into Liverpool, right? Because it was a shipping town, it was a port town. So they'd get records quicker in Liverpool than they'd get them in London, believe it or not, because sailors would bring them over and, you know, they just bought the new Chuck Berry, you know, when they were when they were coming back, you know, on the boat from America, you know, or whatever. So they sort of had this like gumbo to some extent, you know, that was the mercy beat and an early rock and roll. And, uh, you know, it. it it emulsified in, in, in the water, you know, and these kids living under a common kind of cloud. And, uh, you know, and that being like post-World War II, England was was decimated. They really took a beating, obviously, you know, and, and these kids grew up playing in like rubble, you know, the Rolling Stones, like you read Keith Richards' autobiography. He's talking about playing like in these buildings that had been bombed by the Germans, you know, and sometimes they'd find an old shell or something, you know, like it was all right there. These, the baby boomers were people went home and had sex, right. And had a lot of bunch of babies, you know, that's Uh where these guys all came from. So there's something interesting when music is attached to a place, a very specific place, and then it sort of travels the world and it, it, it ignites creativity in all these other places, you know, and when I look at the legacy of the Beatles, who were kind of the high mar- watermark, sort of co-opted rock and roll, because people forget like African-Americans already invented this shit. <laughs> OK, the Beatles weren't doing nothing new. They were covering songs that were recorded right here. Right. But it took a bunch of four white guys from England to introduce America to it, Americans to it, you know, or the Rolling Stones, five guys that were just playing Muddy Waters songs. And people were like, that's great. Where does that come from? <laughs> Chicago, you know, right up the road from you, son. But we didn't even know it, you know, but that's how it worked out because it had to be palatable for the American consumer, right? And four little white kids with funny haircuts in suits are a lot (laughs) less threatening than Howlin' Wolf. Yeah. But anyway, that's how it worked out. And yeah, I'm not knocking them. The Beatles were obviously, you know, touched by the hand of God in terms of talent, you know, and George Martin was this brilliant producer. So they could go in there with an idea and, and he would just turn it into magic. But I like things that are that that come from a region and it, it ignite other regional things. And, and the point I'm getting to is like the greatest legacy for the Beatles to me is all the garage bands that they ignited in America. You know, all the kids are like, that's what I want to do. You know, when they saw the Beatles, every classic rock star I've worked for has the same story. Right. They're like, I was watching Ed Sullivan. I saw the Beatles and I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a guitar and I'm going to kick ass and rock and roll. And it launched a million bands, probably 500,000 garage bands were launched, you know, by the by 1965 or something. And a couple of them turned into awesome bands. Most of them disappeared and whatever. But 
it ignited, you know, creativity that, that continues to this day. And uh, when it's tied to place, it has an authenticity that sort of makes it last. I think that's what people recognize, you know, in the Beatles, it was like, I can do that. Yeah. Right. You know, I can do that. It's four guys. It's three <laughs> chords. They're singing together in harmony. They're simple songs. I want to hold your hand. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, like I can do that. And, and a lot of them did it, you know, my dad, I could, I'm sure he would testify the same thing. You know, I'm wearing his shirt today. Chooch and the Enchanters was launched right. as a result of him watching the Ed Sullivan show and seeing Paul and John, you know, on TV. And, you know, he would do the, well, you know, and then do the impersonations too. Cause it was, uh, you know, I, I kind of had to be a Beatles fan growing up with my dad. Uh, I'm not, I'm not the biggest fan just because he talked about it so much that I wanted to kind of expand my horizons, but uh, Chooch and the Enchanters wouldn't have happened without the Beatles. That's, that's for damn sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Beatles were, John Lennon was a deity in the world I grew up in. Cause I was raised by hippies, you know, and the, the day John <laughs> Lennon was killed, my mom woke me oh. up crying and, you know, it's a memory oh. that is seared into me. And, you know, I would go to the Dakota every year and put a strawberry at strawberry fields. It was like a tradition I always had in New York. And I, I've met Yoko and I've met his kids, you know, Sean and Julian. And I probably told the story about the first time I met Paul McCartney on this show, but I got to do a lot of stuff with Paul McCartney. I was just talking with his guitar player, Brian, the other day, and his drummer follows me. He was an incredible Abe Laboreal Jr. So Crosby Stills and Nash opened for Paul McCartney in Hyde Park. To give you one example, you know, okay. I did a show over there and I went to a party afterwards. And But McCartney's a New York guy. You know, he, he doesn't live far from me on the Upper East Side. And of course, he's got a beautiful place in, in East Hampton. So he was always showing up at New York events. We did the big, you know, firemen's like concert for New York after 9-11. And he invited all my all the crew to go on stage and sing hey jude and my buddy wow. joey did it you know nice. and i remember the first time i did a show with paul mccartney we were doing a fashion rocks vh1 fashion rocks thing it was probably in the 90s and they were honoring his daughter stella mccartney who's a great designer and you know it was live tv dick clark is still alive or you know live to tape and i remember dick clark was the producer and i had to take james brown we were shooting it at a place called the Paramount. It was the originally the Felt Forum. It's a theater in Madison Square Garden. And uh, it always gets renamed. But at this time, it was, I think, called the Paramount. And uh, so we had trailers outside. And I don't know, you wouldn't know this, Jimmy, but Madison Square Garden sits on top of Port Authority, or not Port Authority, Penn Station, which is a train station, right? Mm -hmm. So James Brown is in a trailer outside. And they're like, no, you know, you got to take James out to his trailer. So I'm stage right upstairs, if anybody knows backstage at the garden, and I have to cross the stage to get back out to like where 8th Avenue is, this entrance I'm going to use. And I'm crossing the stage with James Brown and he stops and he's talking to somebody and it's taken like a little bit. And I can't see who he's talking to because he's got these epaulets on, you know, he's got his like James Brown thing, you know? Yeah. What I mean? yeah. And all of a sudden Dick Clark comes on the thing and he's like, hey, we're back in 30 seconds, folks. 30 seconds we're back on air you know and i'm just here in the middle of the stage so i'm like james we gotta go we gotta go and my buddy who's a stage manager goes no i think you might want to let him say hello for a second do you see who he's talking to and i'm like no and i pop around and it's paul mccartney and he looks dead at me and he goes hi i'm paul and he just shakes my hand and i'm like oh my god paul mccartney hey i gotta take james now and paul's like no problem good so we walk outside 
And uh, we're coming out just as a train, you know, had gotten into Penn Station and a bunch of people are coming out the escalator. And New Yorkers will know this story because the escalators go right up onto this sort of promenade on 8th Avenue. So I walk out there just as hundreds of people come up this escalator, escalator, and I'm standing there with James Brown. And they all see James Brown and they're like, hey, little Richard. Oh, my God, it's little Richard. How you doing, little Richard? And he's like, hey, how you doing? How you doing? And he waves to them all and we keep walking. And uh, I go, man, I'm sorry they called you little Richard. He goes, I don't care to them. I'm just another famous N word. Oh, but he said N word. He goes, I'm just another famous N-word, you know, to them, like he was used to it and he kept walking and it was so uh-huh. sardonic, you know, and so James Brown and, and Brown and kind of insightful a thing to say, you know, that he was going to play along. He wasn't going to be like, no, I'm actually James, you know, but my point is these guys were the architects, right? There's so much James Brown and the Beatles, you know, there's so much little Richard, like they, it took outsiders to see what we already have. Right. And in many cases, we're going to suffer that same fate now, or we could use that same boost. Right. We still have so much as a nation. We have natural beauty. We have natural resources. We have, uh, you know, a a good hearted primarily population. You know, many of us have gotten a little misguided and we need some some work, but there's still so many treasures here. It's almost like we need an outsider to be like, hey, calm down, guys. You don't need to burn this place up. A lot of this is, you know, there's still some good meat on the bone, essentially. You know, we just got to, you know, we got to like, we got to see it right. So sometimes music allows us to do that. You know, the Beatles are a great example of that because we're in another kind of tempest of international things like that. They came at the height of the Cold War, Cuban Mm -hmm. Missile Crisis, all this, you know, we were in an existential crisis at that time, too. Right. And we're sort of facing another big challenge in a way we haven't since the 60s. So it's something to keep in mind, you know, and and also let's not forget, you know, it's music that brings us together. It's the arts. Right. When when you think of the Beatles, you think of one thing. All you need is love. Right. That's what you could distill the whole Beatles thing down into love and honesty. Right. Because, you know, John Lennon was so great because he was honest. He was like, yeah, I used to beat my wife. You know, who says that? You'd never get an artist today admitting that, right? But he admitted it and changed. He was an awful person in many ways, okay? I know guys who knew him very well. They're like, he wasn't the the saint that everybody thinks he was. And he'd be the first to tell you that. You know, he was a great artist, but he was a difficult, complicated man who had a lot of trauma in his life and spent his life sort of working through it and telling people not to worship heroes. My favorite Lennon song is when he talks about don't believe in Beatles, don't believe in me. Like, just believe in yourself, man. Look within. That's ultimately what that lesson is. Look within and you'll find love. Well, and, you know, another one of their songs, a couple of them, um, come together and let it be. You know, a lot of their concepts can be applied universally. And it's why they're, why they're such um, magic. And one that he did, so I believe, is his solo career. I, I love Imagine, you know, by, yeah, by that's uh, John shit. Lennon, too. You know, yeah. that's, that's the song for oh. me. You know, that um, you call me a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. There are several people that embody that in everything that they do. Yeah, no, that's a hymn. I mean, that's that's a beautiful sentiment that people listen to in a thousand years and go like, oh, that's dope. You know, and that's to me, that's my favorite work is the early solo stuff of John Lennon. I don't want to get into a debate like comparing that to the (laughs) stuff that like McCartney came up with. But like 
wings. That stuff is awful, man. That shit is awful. <laughs> like, and I'll, I'll get in trouble with my listeners. So I should probably <laughs> just stop there, you know, but it took a the, step down. <laughs> yeah, dude. You know, and at the same time, let's listen to the stuff the stones were putting out, you know, at that period in the early seventies, exile on main street and sticky fingers and let it bleed, you know, and I'm a stones guy. Like that's my stuff right there. Cause I like a harder edge to things, you know, and, and Lennon had a hard, hard edge, you know, Graham Nash told me a story once, you know, Mama Cass was uh, was a big influence on Crosby, Stills and Nash. The, the first time they sang together was in her kitchen and stuff like this. And um, she was a good friend of the band and he was in the Hollies and, and hanging out with her at, a, at a Sunset Sound, I think, in, in L.A. And she worshipped, you know, like John Lennon. And she's like, man, I love John Lennon. I, you know, because Graham knew them since they were 16. They used to mm-hmm. tour together and all that stuff. Like, he, he you know, he's from Manchester same deal you know british invasion and and she was like what would john lennon say if you know if he was here right now like what would he say to me you know yeah. and he was like he'd probably say something pretty mean to you you know <laughs> like he'd probably be an asshole to you to be quite honest yeah. and keep walking you know and this is the mid 60s or whatever but uh it was just funny you know cuz you know she's <laughs> like he's she's like he was a complicated guy For as sure. was mccartney but um Having that much fame at that, you know, that young and like in a new country too, that would be intimidating at, oh, yeah. at that age, you know, like that's a lot for anybody, even if you're talented to absorb that much attention. You know? Yeah, no. And they handled it well, you know, yeah. all things considered, but uh, yeah. it was very uh, managed, you know, it, it was managed very well. And then of course their manager killed himself. So, you know, the dark times set in, but uh, whatever, it's bringing people pleasure, it, you know, the Beatles are not a bad influence by any stretch of the imagination. So it's probably the right time for that documentary to come out because it's given people a little uh, release and a little perspective, you know, and it's certainly a nutritious meal as far as art goes. But um, so that being said, I I can't think of anything else to really talk about. I know I've been talking for a while. So listen, folks, I got a show coming up in Boston, Massachusetts, December 23rd at City Winery, man. It's a big show for me. I'm doing a 6 and a 9 p.m. show. Hope you guys can come out. It's a beautiful venue. It's their Haymarket Lounge, City Winery, Boston, December 23rd. We'll see you there. Otherwise, you can catch up with Jimmy. He's about to tell you where. JBKOnAir.com. You can also follow my podcast, JBK On Air. Anywhere that you get your podcasts, you'll search it and uh, go ahead and subscribe, guys. A lot of interviews that uh, from common people that allow you to kind of see that even if you have a common job, you can make an impact in the world. Well, there you go. If you want to check in with the common people, you listen to Jimmy. The made man, Fat Jimmy. Fat I'm a Jimmy. made man. Fat Jimmy's Corner. Fat Jimmy's. You know, there was a, there's a bar in New York. It's probably not there, but it was called Jimmy's Corner. And it was an yeah. old, like, boxing referee. And it was a boxer's <laughs> bar where boxers would hang out. And I went in there one time as Mike Tyson was walking out of there, Jimmy. <laughs> And I just passed him and just passing. And I love Mike Tyson, but like just passing him was like terrifying. You he know, was in I, prison here for a while, you know. He, oh, he's he, out in Indiana? Yeah. Yeah, he went to prison in Indiana. Reggie Miller had to visit him at the state prison. They had a bet that they would do between each other. Or it was, I'm sorry, it was a bet between him and Spike Lee that uh, if Reggie won, he would have to put Reggie's wife in, in his next movie. Or if uh, Spike won, he would have to go visit Mike Tyson in the state prison. That's crazy. <laughs> so but anyway well on that note folks 
Thanks for listening. This is episode 39. Again, come out to Boston City Winery, December 23rd. If you're a New York City resident, I will be at the Iridium in New York City, January 26th. So we'll check in before then. We'll see you next week. Be safe, be healthy, be well. Peace.